Chapter seventy four, seventy five, and seventy six of Ruth Hall by Fanny Fern. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter seventy four. Those of my readers who are well acquainted with journalism know that some of our newspapers, nominally edited by the persons whose names appear as responsible in that capacity, seldom, perhaps never, contain an article from their pen, the whole paper being made up by some obscure individual with more brains than pennies, whose brilliant paragraphs, metaphysical essays, and racy book reviews are attributed and tactically fathered by the comfortably fed gentlemen whose keep these their factotums in some garret just one degree above starving point in the city where board is expensive and single gentlemen are taken in and done for under many a sloping attic roof are born thoughts which should win for their originators fame and independence mr horace gates a gentlemanly slender scholar-like looking person held this nondescript an unrecognized relation to the irving magazine the nominal editor ruth's brother hyacinth furnishing but one article a week to deduct from the immense amount of labor necessary to their weekly issue hi-ho said mr gates dashing down his pen four columns yet to make up i am getting tired of this drudgery my friend Seaton told me that he was dining at a restaurant the other day when my employer, Mr. Hyacinth Ellett, came in and that a gentleman took occasion to say, Mr. E., how much he admired his article in the last Irving magazine on city life. His article. It took me one of the hottest days this season in this furnace of a garret which the beaded drop standing on my suffering forehead to write that article which by the way has been copied far and wide his article and the best of the joke is seaton says the cool way in which ellet thanked him and pocketed all the credit of it but what's this here's a note from the very gentleman himself sir i have noticed that you have several times scissorized from the exchanges articles over the signature of floy and inserted them in our paper and that no allusion be made to her in any way or shape in the columns of the irving magazine as you are in our business confidence i may say that the writer is a sister of mine and that it would annoy and mortify me exceedingly to have the fact known and it is my express wish that you should not hereafter in any way aid in circulating her articles yours incorporated hyacinth ellet what does that mean said gates his sister why don't he want her to write i have cut out every article of hers as fast as they appeared confounded good they are too and i call myself a judge they are better at any rate than half our paper is filled with this is all very odd it stimulates my curiosity amazingly his sister married or unmarried maid wife or widow she can't be poor when he's so well off gave one hundred dollars for a vase which struck his fancy yesterday at martini's i don't understand it annoy and mortify him exceedingly what can he mean i must get at the bottom of that she is becoming very popular at any rate her pieces are travelling all over the country and here is one to my mind as good as anything he ever wrote ha ha 
Perhaps that's the very idea now. Perhaps he wants to be the only genius in the family. Let him, if he can, if she don't win an enviable name, and in a very short time, too. I shall be mistaken. I wish I knew something about her. Hyacinth is a heartless dog, pays me principally in fine speeches, and because I am not in a position just now to speak my mind about it, I suppose he takes me for the pliant tool I appear. By Jupiter, it makes my blood boil. But let me get another and better offer, Mr. Ellet, and see how long I will write articles for you to father in this confounded hot garret. His sister, I will inquire into that. I'll bet a box of cigars she writes for daily bread. Heaven help her if she does, poor thing. It's hard enough, as I know, for a man to be jostled and snubbed round in printing offices. Well, well, it's no use wondering. I must go to work. What a pile of books here is to be reviewed. Wonder who reads all the books. Here is Uncle Sam's log house. Mr. Elt writes me that I must simply announce the book without comment, for fear of offending Southern subscribers. The word slave, I know, has been tabooed in our columns this long while, for the same reason. Here are poems by Lena Lintley, weak as diluted water, but the authoress once paid Mr. Ellet a compliment in a newspaper article, and here is her reward of merit, in a memorandum attached to the book, and just sent down by Mr. Ellet. Give this volume a first-rate notice. Bah! What's the use of criticism when a man's opinion can be bought and sold that way? It is an imposition on the public. There is the Barrels, too. I am to give that a capital notice, because the authoress introduced Mr. Ellet in fashionable society when a young man. The grammar in that book would give Lindley Murray convulsions, and the construction of the sentences drive Blair to a madhouse. Well, a great deal the dear public know what a book is, by the reviews of it in this paper. Heaven forgive me the lies I tell this way on compulsion." The humbuggery of this establishment is only equaled by the gullibility of the dear public. Once a month now I am ordered to puff every influential paper in the Union to ward off attacks on the Irving magazine, and the bait takes, too, by Jove. That little tea-table tri-mountain mercury has not muttered or peeped about Hyacinth's toadyism when abroad, since Mr. Ellet gave me orders to praise the typographical and literary excellence of that widely circulated paper. Then there is the editor of The Bugbear, a cut-and-throat bludgeon, pen-and-ink desperado, who makes the mincing, aristocratic hyacinth quake in his patent-leather boots. I have orders to toss him a sugar-plum occasionally, to keep his plebeian mouth shut, something after the French maxim, always to praise a person for what they are not, for instance. Our very gentlemanly neighbor and contemporary, the discriminating and refined editor of the bugbear, whose very readable and spicy paper, etc., etc. Then there is the religious press. Hyacinth, having rather a damaged reputation, is anxious to enlist them on his side, particularly the editor of the religious platform. I am to copy at least one of his editorials once a fortnight, or in some way call attention to his paper. 
Then, if Hyenza chooses to puff actresses, and call Madame so-and-so a splendid personification of womanhood, and praise her equivocal writings in his paper, which lies on many a family table to be read by innocent young girls, he knows the caustic pen of that religious editor will never be dipped in ink to reprove him. That is the way it is done. Mutual admiration society. Bah! I wish I had a paper. Wouldn't I call things by their right names? Would I know any sex in books? Would I praise a book because a woman wrote it? Would I abuse it for the same reason? Would I say, as one of our most able editors said not long since to his reviewer, Cut it up, root and branch. What right have these women to set themselves up for authors and reap literary laurels? Would I unfairly insert all the adverse notices of a book and never copy one in its praise? Would I pass over the wholesale swindling of some aristocratic scoundrel and trumpet in my police report with heartless comments the name of some poor, tempted, starving wrench far less deserving of censure in God's eye than myself? Would I have my tongue or my pen tied in any way by policy or interest or cliqueism? No, sir. The world never will see a paper till mine is started. Would I write long descriptions of the wardrobe of foreign prima donnas who bring their cracked voices and reputations to our American market and occupy suites of rooms lined with satin and damask and velvet and goodness knows what? and give their reception sorees at which they affably notice are toadying first citizens? By Jupiter, why shouldn't they be affable? Don't they come over here for our money and patronage? Who cares how many bracelets Signora so-and-so had on, or whose arm she leaned gracefully upon, or whether her hair was braided or curled, if, because a lord or a duke once honored her, by insulting her with infamous proposals, some few brainless Americans choose to defy her as a goddess, in the name of George Washington and common sense, let it not be taken as a national exponent. There are some few Americans left who prefer ipecac to homeopathic doses. End of chapter 74 Chapter 75 "'Hark, Nettie, go to the door, dear,' said Ruth. "'Someone knocked.' "'It is a strange gentleman, Mama," whispered Nettie, "'and he wants to see you.' Ruth bowed as the stranger entered. She could not recollect that she had ever seen him before, but he looked very knowing and, what was very provoking, seemed to enjoy her embarrassment hugely. He regarded Nettie, too, with a very scrutinizing look and seemed to devour everything with the first glance of his keen, searching eye. He even seemed to listen to the whirr, whirr, whirr of the odd, strange lodger in the garret overhead. "'I don't recollect you,' said Ruth, hesitating and blushing slightly. "'You have the advantage of me, sir.' "'And yet you and I have been writing to each other for a week or more.' replied the gentleman with a good-humoured smile you have even signed a contract entitling me to your pen and ink services mr walter said ruth holding out her hand yes replied mr walter i had business this way and i could not come here without finding you out 
"'Oh, thank you,' said Ruth. "'I was just wishing that I had some head wiser than mine "'to help me decide on a business matter "'which came up two or three days ago. "'Somehow I don't feel the least reluctance to bore you with it "'or doubt that your advice will not be the just thing. "'But I shall not stop to dissect the philosophy of that feeling, "'lest in grasping at the shadow I should lose the substance.' said she, smiling. While Ruth was talking, Mr. Walter's keen eye glanced about the room, noting its general comfortless appearance, and the little bowl of bread and milk that stood waiting for their supper. Ruth observed this, and blushed deeply. When she looked again at Mr. Walter, his eyes were glistening with tears. "'Come here, my darling,' he said to Nettie, trying to hide his emotion. "'I don't know you.' answered Nettie. "'But you will, my dear, because I am your mamma's friend.' "'Are you Katie's friend?' asked Nettie. "'Katie?' repeated Mr. Walter. "'Yes, my sister Katie. She can't live here, because we don't have supper enough. Pretty soon mamma will earn more supper, won't you, mamma?' "'Shan't you be glad when Katie comes home, and we all have enough to eat.' said the child to Mr. Walter. Mr. Walter pressed his lips to the child's forehead with a low, Yes, my darling, and then placed his watch-chain and seals at her disposal, fearing Ruth might be painfully affected by her artless prattle. Ruth then produced the different publishers' offers she had received for her book, and handed them to Mr. Walter. Well, he said, with a gratified smile, I am not at all surprised, but what are you going to reply? Here is my answer, said Ruth, provided your judgment endorses it. I am a novice in such matters, you know, but I cannot help thinking, Mr. Walter, that my book will be a success. You will see that I have acted upon that impression and refused to sell my copyright. You don't approve it, said she looking a little confused, as Mr. Walter bent his keen eyes on her without replying. "'But I do, though,' said he. "'I was only thinking how excellent a substitute strong common sense may be for experience. Your answer is brief, concise, sagacious, and businesslike. I endorse it unhesitatingly. It is just what I should have advised you to write.' You are correct in thinking that your book will be popular, and wise in keeping the copyright in your own hands, and how incredibly short a time you have gained a literary reputation, Floy. Yes, answered Ruth, smiling. It is all like a dream to me. And then the smile faded away, and she shuddered involuntarily as a recollection of all her struggles and sufferings came vividly up to her remembrance. Swiftly the hours fled away, as Mr. Walter, with a brother's freedom, questioned Ruth as to her past life, and drew from her the details of her eventful history. "'Thank God the morning dawneth,' said he, in a subdued tone, as he pressed Ruth's hand and bade her a parting good-night." Ruth closed the door upon Mr. Walter's retreating figure, and sat down to peruse the following letters, which had been sent her to Mr. Walter's care, at the household messenger office. Mrs. or Miss Floy, permit me to address you on a subject which lies near my heart, which is, in fact, 
a subject of pecuniary importance to the person now addressing you. My story is to me a painful one. It would doubtless interest you. Were it written and published, it would be a thrilling tale. Some months since I had a lover whom I adored, and who said he adored me. But, as Shakespeare has said, the course of true love never did run smooth. Ours soon became an uphill affair. My lover proved false, ceased his visits, and sat on the other side of the meeting-house. On my writing to him and desiring an explanation, he insultingly replied that I was not what his fancy had painted me. Was that my fault? False, fickle, ungenerous man! But I was not thus to be deceived and shuffled off. No, I employed the best counsel in the state, and commenced an action for damages, determined to get some balm for my wounded feelings. But owing to the premature death of my principal witness, I lost the case, and the costs were heavy. The excitement and worry of the trial brought on a fever, and I found myself, on my recovery, five hundred dollars in debt. I intend to pay every cent of this, but how am I to pay it? My salary for teaching school is small, and it will take me many years. I want you, therefore, to assist me by writing out my story and giving me the book. I will furnish all the facts and the story. Written out by your magic pen would be a certain success. A publisher in this city has agreed to publish it for me if you will write it. I could then triumph over the villain who so basely deceived me. Please send me an early answer, as the publisher referred to is in a great hurry. Very respectfully yours, Sarah Jarmison. Well, said Ruth, laughing, my bump of invention will be entirely useless if my kind friends keep on furnishing me with subjects at this rate. Here is letter number two. Dear Floy, my dog Fido is dead. He was a splendid Newfoundland black and shaggy. Father gave ten dollars for him when he was a pup. We all loved him dearly. He was a prime dog, could swim like a fish. The other morning we found him lying motionless on the doorstep. Somebody had poisoned poor Fido. I cried all that day and didn't play marbles for a whole week. He is buried in the garden, and I want you to write an epithelium about him. My brother John, who is looking over my shoulder, is laughing like everything. He says it's an ifidum, not an infilathium, that I want, just as if I didn't know what I want. John is just home from college and thinks he knows everything. It is my dog, and I'll fix his tombstone just as I like. Fellows in round jackets are not always fools. Send it along quick, please, Floy. The stone-cutter is at work now. What a funny way to cut marble, don't they? With sand and water. Johnny Weld and I go there every recess to see how they get on with the tombstone. Don't stick in any Latin or Greek now, in your epithalamium. Our John cannot call for a glass of water without lugging in one or the other of them. I'm sick as death of it. I wonder if I shall be such a fool when I go to college. You ought to be glad you are a woman and don't have to go. Don't forget Fido now. Remember, he was six years old, black, shaggy, with a white spot on his forehead, and rather a shortish tail. A prime dog, I tell you. Billy Sands
"'It is a harrowing case, Billy,' said Ruth. "'But I shall have to let Fido pass. "'Now for letter number three. "'Dear Madam, I address a stranger, and yet not a stranger, "'for I have read your heart in your many writings. "'In them I see sympathy for the poor, the sorrowing, and the dependent. "'I see a tender love for helpless childhood. "'Dear Floy, I am an orphan.' and that most wretched of all beings, a loving but unloved wife. The hour so dreaded by all maternity draws near to me. It has been revealed to me in dreams that I shall not survive it. Floy, will you be a mother to my babe? I cannot tell you why I put this trust in one whom I have only known through her writings, but something assures me it will be safe with you that you only can fill my place in the little heart that this moment is pulsating beneath my own. Oh, do not refuse me. There are none in the wide world to dispute the claim I would thus transfer to you. It's father, but of him I will not speak. The wine-cup is my rival. Write me speedily. I shall die content if your arms receive my babe. Yours affectionately, Mary Andrews. "'Poor Mary! That letter must be answered,' said Ruth, with a sigh. "'Ah, here is one more letter. "'Miss or Mrs. or Madame Floy, "'I suppose by this time you have become so inflated "'that the honest truth would be rather unpalatable to you. "'Nevertheless, I am going to send you a few plain words. "'The rest of the world flatters you. "'I shall do no such thing.' You have written tolerably, all things considered, but you violate all established rules of composition, and are as lawless and erratic as a comet. You may startle and dazzle, but you are fit only to throw people out of their orbits. Now and then there's a gleam of something like reason in your writings, but for the most part they are unmitigated trash, false in sentiment, unrhetorical inexpression in short were you my daughter which i thank a good providence you are not i should box your ears and keep you on a bread and water diet till you improved that you can do better if you will i am very sure and that is why i take the pains to find fault and tell you what none of your fawning friends will you are not a genius no madam not by any removes shakespeare was a genius milton was a genius the author of history of the dark ages which has reached its fifteenth edition was a genius you may not know you have now the honour of being addressed by him no madam you are not a genius nor have i seen a just criticism of your writings they are all either overpraised or overabused you have a certain sort of talent and that talent i grant you is peculiar but a genius? No, no. Mrs. or Miss or Madame Floy, you don't approach genius, though I am not without a hope that, if you are not spoiled by injudicious, sympocratic admirers, you may yet produce something credible, although I candidly confess that it is my opinion that the female mind is incapable of producing anything which may be strictly termed literature." Your honest friend, William Stearns. Professor of Greek 
hebrew and mathematics in hopetown college an author of history of the dark ages o oh, vanity thy name is william stearns said ruth End of chapter seventy five chapter seventy six have you ever submitted your head to a phrenological examination asked mr walter as he made a call on ruth the next morning no said ruth i believe that much more is to be told by the expression of people's faces than by the bumps on their heads and you a woman of sense replied mr walter will you have your head examined to please me i should like to know what professor finman would say of you before i leave town well yes i don't mind going said ruth provided the professor does not know his subject and i see that there's fair play said she laughing but i warn you beforehand that i have not the slightest faith in the science ruth tied on her bonnet and was soon demurely seated in the professor's office with her hair about her shoulders mr walter sat at a table near prepared to take notes in shorthand you have an unusually even head madam said the professor most of the faculties are fully developed there are not necessarily any extremes in your character and when you manifest them they are more the result of circumstances than the natural tendency of the mind you are of a family where there was more than ordinary unity in the connubial relations certainly in the marriage if not in the after-life of your parents your physiology indicates a predominance of the nervous temperament this gives unusual activity of mind and furnishes the capacity for a great amount of enjoyment or suffering few enjoy or suffer with such intensity as you do your happiness or misery depends very much on surrounding influences and circumstances you have next a predominance of vital temperament which gives great warmth and ardor to your mind and enables you to enjoy physical comfort and the luxuries of life in a high degree your muscular system is rather defective there not being enough to furnish real strength and stamina of constitution although you may live to be aged you will not be able to put forth such vigorous efforts as you could do were the motive or muscular temperament developed in a higher degree you may think i am mistaken on this point but i am not you have an immense power of will are energetic and forcible in overcoming obstacles would display more than ordinary fortitude in going through trials and difficulties and possess a tenacity of purpose and perseverance in action which enable you to do whatever you are determined upon doing but these are mental characteristics not physical and your mind often tires out your body and leaves you in a state of muscular prostration your phrenology indicates an unusual degree of respect and regard for whatever you value as superior i do not mean conventional superiority or a bombastic assumption but what you really believe to be good and noble as a child you are very obedient unless your sense of justice which is very strong was violated in such a case it was somewhat difficult for you to yield either ready or implicit obedience you are religiously disposed 
you are also characterized by a strong belief in divine influences, providences, and special interpositions from on high. You are more than ordinarily spiritual in the tone of your mind. You see, or think you see, the hand of providence in things as they transpire. You are also very conscientious, and this combined with your firmness, which is quite strong, and supported by your faith in providence, gives you a striking degree of what is called moral courage. When you believe you are right, there is no moving you, and your friends probably think that you are sometimes very obstinate. But let them convince your intellect and satisfy your conscience, and you will be quite tractable, or especially as you are characterized by unusual sympathy and tenderness of feeling. You too easily catch the spirit of others, of those you love and are interested in, and feel as they feel, and enjoy or suffer as they do. You have very strong hope with reference to immortality and future happiness. When a young girl, you were remarkably abounding in your spiritual anticipations of what you were going to be as a woman. You possess an extraordinary degree of perseverance, but have not a marked degree of prompt decision. After you have decided, you act energetically, and are more sure to finish what you commence, than you are ready to begin a new enterprise. You are decidedly cautious, anxious, mindful of results, and desire to avoid difficulty and danger. You take all necessary care, and provide well for the future. Your cautiousness is, in fact, too active. You place a very high value on your character, are particularly sensitive to reproach, cannot tolerate scolding or being found fault with. You can be quite reserved, dignified, and even haughty. You are usually kind and affable, but are capable of strong feelings of resentment. You make few enemies by your manner of speaking and acting. You are uniform in the manifestation of your affections. You do not form attachments readily or frequently. On the contrary, you are quite particular in the choice of your friends, and are very devoted to those to whom you become attached. You manifested these same traits when a child, in the selection of playmates. Your love is a mental love, a regard for the mind rather than the person of the individual. You appreciate the masculine mind as such, rather than the physical form. You have a high regard for chivalry, manliness, and intellectuality in man, but you also demand goodness and religious devotion. It would give you pain to hear a friend speak lightly of what you consider sacred things, and I hardly think you would ever love a man whom you knew to be irreligious. Your maternal feelings are very strong. You are much interested in children. You sympathize with and understand them perfectly. You are, yourself, quite youthful in the tone of your mind, much younger than many not half your age. This, taken in connection with your sympathy with, and appreciation of, the character of children, enables you to entertain them and win them to your wishes. But, at times, you are too anxious about their welfare. You are strongly attached to place, and are intensely patriotic. You believe in Plymouth Rock and Bunker Hill. 
you are not content without a home of your own, and yet, in a home of your own, you would not be happy without pleasant surroundings and associations, scenery, and such things as would facilitate improvement and enjoyment. You are very fond of poetry and beauty, wherever you see it, of oratory, sculpture, painting, scenery, flowers, and beautiful sentiments. You must have everything nice. You cannot tolerate anything coarse or gross. The world is hardly finished nice enough for you. You are too exacting in this respect. The fact is, you are made of finer clay than most of us. You are particular with reference to your food, and not easily suited. You must have that which is clean and nice, or none. Whatever you do, such as embroidery, drawing, painting, needlework, or any artistic performance, is very nicely done. Your constructiveness is very large. You can plan well can lay out work for others to advantage, can cut out things, and invent new and tasteful fashions. Your appreciation of colors is very nice. You can arrange and blend them harmoniously, in dress, in decoration of rooms, etc. You could make a slim wardrobe, and a small stock of furniture go a great way, and get up a better-looking parlor with a few hundred dollars than could some with as many thousands. You exhibit a predominance of the reflective intellect over the perceptive, and are characterized for thought, judgment, and the power to comprehend ideas more than for your knowledge of things, facts, circumstances, or conditions of things. You remember and understand what you read better than what you see and hear. Still, you are more than ordinarily observant. In passing along the street, you would see much more than people in general, and would be able to describe very accurately the style, execution, and quality of whatever you saw. You have a pliable mind. You love acting, and would excel as an actress. You have great power of sarcasm. You enjoy fun highly, but it must be of the right kind. You will tolerate nothing low. You are precise in the use of language, and are a good verbal critic. You ought to be a good conversationalist, and a forcible and spicy writer. In depicting character and describing scenes, you would be apt to display many of the characteristics which Dickens exhibits. Your aptness in setting forth, your keen sense of the ludicrous, your great powers of amplification, and the intensity of your feelings, would enable you to produce a finely wrought out and exquisitely colored picture. You have also an active sense of music, are almost passionately fond of that kind which is agreeable to you. You have more than ordinary fortitude, but are lacking in the influences of combativeness. Your temper comes to a crisis too soon. You cannot keep angry long enough to scold. You dislike contention. You read the minds of others almost instantaneously, and at once form a favorable and unfavorable impression of a person. You are secretive and disposed to conceal your feelings, are anxious to avoid unnecessary exposure of your faults, and know how to appear to the best advantage. You have a good faculty of entertaining others, but can be with persons a long time, without their becoming acquainted with you. You dream things true. Truth comes to you in dreams, 
forewarnings, admonitions, etc. You are liable to be a very happy or very unhappy woman. The worst feature of your whole character or tone of mind arises from the influence of your education. Too much attention was paid to your mind and not enough to your body. You were brought forward too early and made a woman of too soon. Ideas too big for you were put into your mind, and it was not occupied enough about the ordinary affairs of life. This renders your mind too morbid and sensitive, and unfits you for encountering the disagreeable phases of life. You can endure disagreeable things with martyr-like firmness, but not with martyr-like resignation. They prey both on your mind and body, and wear heavily upon your spirit. You feel as though someone must go forward and clear the way for you to enjoy yourself. And if by any reverse of fortune you have ever been thrown on your own resources and forced to take care of yourself, you had to learn some lessons, which should have been taught you before you were sixteen years old. But in the general tone of your mind in elevation of thought, feeling, sympathy, sentiment, and religious devotion, you rank far above most of us, above many who are, perhaps, better prepared to discharge the ordinary duties of life. In conclusion, I will remark that very much might be said with reference to the operations of your mind, for we seldom find the faculties so fully developed, or the powers so versatile as in your case." "'Well,' said Mr. Walter, with a triumphant air, as they left the professor's office, "'Well, Floy, what do you think?' "'I think we have received our two dollars' worth in flattery,' replied Ruth, laughing. "'There is not a whit of exaggeration in it,' said Mr. Walter. "'The professor has hit you off to the life.' "'Well, I suppose it would be wasting breath to discuss the point with you,' said Ruth. "'so I will merely remark that I was highly amused "'when he said I should make a good actress. "'I have so often been told that. "'True, comedy would be your forte, though. "'How is it that when looking about for employment "'you never contemplated the stage?' "'Well, you know, Mr. Walter, "'that we Mayflower descendants hold the theatre in abhorrence. "'For myself, however, I can speak from observation.' Being determined not to take that doctrine on hearsay, I have witnessed many theatrical performances, and they only served to confirm my prejudices against the institution. I never should dream of such a means of support. Your professor made one great mistake, for instance, said Ruth. He thinks my physique is feeble. Do you know that I can walk longer and faster than any six women in the United States? Yes, said Mr. Walter. I know all about that. I have known you, under a strong, impetuous, do six days work in one, and I have known you after it prostrated with a nervous headache which defied every attempt at mitigation. He is right, Ruth. Your mind often tires your body completely out. Another thing your professor says I do not like to be found fault with. Now, this is not quite true. I do not object, for instance, to fair criticism. I quarrel with no one who denies to my writings literary merit. 
they have a right to hold such an opinion, a right to express it, but to have one's book reviewed on hearsay, to persons who never looked between the covers, or to have isolated paragraphs circulated, with words italicized, so that gross constructions might be forced upon the reader, which the author never could dream of. Then, to have paragraphs taken up in that state, credited to you, and commented upon by horrified moralists, that is what I call unfair play, Mr. Walter. When my sense of justice is thus wounded, I do feel keenly, and I have sometimes thought if such persons knew the suffering that such thoughtlessness, to baptize it by the most charitable name, may cause a woman who must either weep in silence over such injustice, or do violence to her womanly nature by a public contention for her rights, such outrages would be much less frequent, it seems to me, she said earnestly. Were I a man, it would be so sweet to use my powers to defend the defenseless. It would seem to me so impossible to use that power to echo the faintest rumor adverse to a woman, or to keep cowardly silence in the shrugging, sneering, slanderer's presence, when a bold word of mind for the cause of right might close his dastard lips. Bravo, Ruth! You speak like an oracle. Your sentiments are excellent, but I hope you are not so unsophisticated as to expect ever to see them put into universal practice. Editors are but men, and in editorial profession, as in all other professions, may be found very shabby specimens of humanity. A petty, mean-spirited fellow is seldom improved by being made an editor of. On the contrary, his pettiness and meanness are generally intensified. It is a pity that such unscrupulous fellows should be able to bring discredit on so intelligent and honorable a class of the community. However, said Mr. Walter, we all fare more or less responsible, for if the better class of editors refrained from copying abusive paragraphs, their circulation would be confined to a kennel class whose opinion is a matter of very little consequence. By the way, Ruth, said Mr. Walter, after walking on in silence a few rods, how is it, in these days of female preachers, that you never contemplated the pulpit or lecture-room? As for the lecture-room, replied Ruth, I had as great a horror of that, as far as I am concerned, as the profession of an actress, but not long since I heard the eloquent Miss Lucy Stone one evening, when it really did appear to me that those bloomers of hers had a mission. Still, I never could put them on, and as to the pulpit, I have too much reverence for that, to think of putting my profane foot into it. It is part of my creed that a congregation can no more repay a conscientious, God-fearing, devoted minister than you can help expressing your real sentiments, said Mr. Walter, laughing. As you please, replied Ruth, but people who live in glass houses should not throw stones. But here we are at home. Don't you hear the whir, whir? End of chapter 76